right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Solly here. Got an interview with Honorbon Lahiri coming up here shortly. Wanted to get this out last week, obviously, after his incredible run at the Players' Championship. He had a busy week of media, as you may expect. Uh, recorded this this past weekend. Talked a lot about the Players' Championship. Emerging from a little bit of a slump, what it's been like through COVID, not getting enough coaching probably that he needs, not getting the swing hygiene, uh, which is the word he uses, which we talk a lot about. A ton on his backstory, how he got into golf, President's Cup experiences. This was this is a really good one. He is a very interesting dude and uh, great personality, and I greatly enjoyed chatting with him. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Travis Matthew Golf Season Heating Up. We got to tell you about the launch of Travis Matthew's heater collection, including the Heater Polo. It's a new performance polo designed to make sure you are performing and feeling your best. In fact, if you're looking for endorsements before you try it yourself, the Heater Polo in its five colorways has become the number one ranked John Rahm's go-to major winning polo. It's specifically designed with performance fabrications for the course. The collection also includes uh, Travis Matthews' signature bottoms, jackets, and the all-new heater hat. Uh, It just marries performance and actual appearance really, really well. Each product features an arsenal of performance benefits like lightweight comfort, enhanced four-way stretch, and quick-drying properties to help you excel on the golf course. It's designed for pure performance without sacrificing style. Fuel your success on the course with engineering fabrics and designs to take your game to the next level. Head to travismatthew.com and take 20% off your Travis Matthew order with code NLU20. That's 20% off your order at T-R-A-V-I-S-M-A-T-H-E-W.com with code NLU20. Without any further delay, here is Anurban Lahiri. So how does this week compare in terms of a very specific question? On a weekly basis, are you checking to see when that uh, paycheck hits the bank account? And was this week any different? Uh, it was a little bit different, definitely. Uh, I, I do know it's a Monday finish, so it's probably going to come in slightly later in the week. But to be really honest with you, I was waiting to get that check out to my caddy more than anything else because, you know, he's earned it as much as I have, but goes a much longer way for uh, some of the guys who do what they do for us out there. I was going to say, man, I was gutted for you. I was rooting for you, but there couldn't have been a better tournament in the history of golf maybe to finish runner-up in, right? <laughs> don't don't ask Lou Eustace in that. He'll uh, have a different answer for you. Yeah, potentially, potentially. But, I mean, uh, among many of them, what, what what was the highlight from this past week? Uh, it's hard to pick, really. I think just the, I mean, the whole week, it felt like forever. I mean, uh, I remember, like, the final round, Doug Gim uh, and myself and Sebastian, we were, like, on the 12th hole waiting to hit our tee shots. We were like, man, it seems like we've been here. Like, I, I can't even remember when we started today. Uh, and it was just one of those weeks that just never seemed to end. Um, so to pick a highlight is hard, but I, I'd say I, I'd pick any of those second shots into 11. I think that, that hole for me was, was everything. Like, it, it was incredible how I played that 11th hole, which... Uh, I think that hole for me changed the tournament, to be honest, right from the first day to the last. Which round was it when you, uh, while it was in the air, you yelled at it to be so good? Because that was, that got me, <laughs> that got me off the couch, man. <laughs> I was so excited. That was late Sunday evening. That was the last shot yeah. I hit uh, on Sunday. We knew it was going to get called pretty soon. Uh, and I knew it was pretty tight. And as soon as it came out, it just, it looked so good. I mean, 
I hit some incredible approach shots on that hole. Uh, uh, and yeah, uh, that firewood just just took off on that left trap, just as I hoped, and it just bled. I knew I'd hit it just right, and uh, I was uh, I was excited. You could tell, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it. Uh, how, how do you how do you marry this? So if I have it right, you had five missed cuts and a T seventy four at the players in six starts prior to this. Coming off three missed cuts and a T something in the seventies, I believe at Bay Hill the week before that. Yet and an eighty two. Yeah. <laughs> On a Sunday. Yeah. Yet you turn around and almost win one of the biggest golf tournaments in the world. Does that sum up professional golf for anyone that doesn't do the day in and day out? Does that, like, you you know, you obviously have it in you. It's not there recently, but it can turn that quickly. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it plenty. You know, we've seen so many, and I, and I mentioned that in in my you know pre tournament presser with the Indian media specifically and they were like asking me how are you going to turn around I'm like look I'm I know I'm doing the right thing I just got to keep at it and it when it when it clicks it clicks when it switches it switches and then you just got to put you know your pedal to the metal and, and so many guys have come broken these crazy streaks and just gone out and won I know James Hahn did it a few years ago where he was yeah, he couldn't catch a break and next thing you know he wins Wells Fargo and he's not alone there's a lot of us who've done it and it happens in the world of professional golf more often than people would think it possible too. But going back to what you said, Tali, it, it comes down to that. It's like, you know what you're doing, you know what you're working on, and you know that, you know, I just need that one thing to click or I need that one thing to kind of just, you know, fit the puzzle and then I'm good to go. And, and that kind of happened for me last week. What is the one thing to click then? For me personally, it was just my iron play. You know, I spoke about it at length uh, in uh, at different times during the week. Uh, but, you know, when I was uh, just looking back at how I was playing, I I actually looked at the last five events as, as a block. And when I started at Phoenix, my game was kind of all over the place. Lots of things were not working, uh, but I was driving it good. Uh, and then my putting was awful, and then I managed to fix that. I got to Riviera, and I had a brainwave. Uh, on on something that Seekman, James Seekman is my coach, you know, short game coach, and something he had asked me to do. And then I remember uh, Thursday evening, we were there till pretty much dark, uh, Tim and I, my caddy, uh, just doing that one thing that I like, oh, oh man, I got to do this. And we were there. And, and then that kind of just put my putting exactly where I needed to be. I started seeing it good. So we managed to fix that, then fast forward to Honda. Where I actually did pretty much everything good. I hit a lot of fairways. I putted great. I chipped great. But as soon as I hit the fairway, I'd, I'd get a wedge or Ada in my hand, and I'd just go white because I had no idea where it was gonna go. Uh, I was completely out of sync with my irons. More of the same at Bay Hill. Made some progress. Um, went back and forth with my coach, back and forth with my fitter, Rusty Estes, who's been out here a long time. Um, and then I got to the point kind of end of Bay Hill week where I was happy with how I was swinging it, but just not happy with how it was coming out. Uh, and then we made some changes, uh, late Monday evening last week of the players, uh, where we just kind of, you know, messed around with the swing weights because we'd literally gone through everything. We checked lies, lofts, lengths, weights. We, we'd done everything that was to be done. And then my, my Rusty is like, look, you know, you, your swing weights have gone out with your woods, but we've left them as they were for the last six or seven years with your irons, you know, it's worth just moving those up as well and kind of making them proportional to your woods and just see how, how they come out because you're hitting your woods straight, obviously. So let's try that. And we tried it and, you know, I made the same swing, but the ball actually came out on the planet. So 
Tuesday, Wednesday was great for my confidence. I started hitting golf shots. I wasn't just trying to guide it around and, you know, just keep it in play. So from then on, it was, I was just freewheeling. I came in with no expectations, but knowing fully well that I'm, you know, on top of a lot of different departments of my game. Uh, and then it was just about, you know, hitting one shot at a time, spent a lot of time on my process and routine with my performance guy back in India. And obviously that showed up because, uh, you know, I was able to do that through everything that happened in the last eight, 10 days. You, you've won, for the, for the listeners that aren't as familiar, you've won a lot of tournaments all around the world. You've been in contention a lot of times. What is it like getting back in contention when you haven't been there in a while? Are you able to draw off of old memories of it? Does it feel like, oh, yeah, this is back where I'm supposed to be? Does it feel a little out of place? What is it like kind of when it hasn't happened in a while to be back in that spot? It's a really good question because I was kind of wondering myself going into Monday how I would respond simply because it's been so long. It's been felt like, you know, a different lifetime from when I was actually leading from the front and, you know, people had to come get me sort of. Uh, and, and, you know, I wasn't trying to miracle a 64 or a 62 on a Sunday to try and win. But yes, I think one thing is that I have been on that stage before. I've been up there on the leaderboards at majors before. I've, I've played you know, whatever event, the biggest events there are in golf, I've been a part of it. I've, I've had successes and failures both. So it wasn't new. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Everyone's watching me because that's happened before. What was different for me was, you know, all the water under the bridge, all the experience of actually not being there or not playing well. I really cherished, enjoyed and savored every minute, every moment that I was there. Uh, and at the end of the day, I kind of knew that I was, playing well. I knew I was confident. I had the belief in my game. Uh, and I know from playing golf for long enough now that, you know, in a situation like that on a, I was going to say Sunday, but on a Monday like that, all you got to do is, you know, put it in play, give yourself a lot of good looks at birdie. You make a couple of putts and you start getting that momentum going. If you're going to minimize mistakes, it's going to be hard for someone to come catch you. So, you know, my mindset was just set to, okay, this is what I need to do. These are my plans. This is what I'm going to execute. Let's just go do that. Uh, and I was able to do it. I was able to block out a lot of the noise, a lot of, you know, the stage, because it was a very big stage. But I really didn't pay any uh, any heat to that. I just went out and did what I wanted to do. And, and I was really proud about that. Because uh, it'd be so easy for me to, you know, start looking around and saying, oh, my God, I'm here at the players. And this is the prize purse. And these are the world ranking points. And you know, there's a lot there's a lot to play for obviously but at the end of the day I just played golf and you know I'm really happy about that that's something that you know us sitting at home at least for me I I, I just don't know how you ever really actually do block all those things out right like I know that's the secret like you have to do it but how you actually do it, it it's amazing to me it's it's a lot of boring repetitive do the same thing over and over and do it better and cleaner and you know, a little bit of, you know, meditation, a little bit of yoga, a little bit of focus band, a little bit of back and forth with, you know, guys who are really good at this, who can help you with this. And, and a lot, like I said, just doing it over and over again and doing it wrong enough number of times to kind of know that, okay, I got to avoid this and I got to avoid that. And I just got to stick to this. And I'm, I'm actually glad that, you know, the players was the fifth week in a row for me. Because the only thing that I was consistent with leading up to it was my process and my routine. So I didn't have to, like, warm that up. That that machine was purring. 
And and thank God it was because I needed it. You know, I needed all of that to just stay focused. I I, I don't feel bad, uh, you know, not knowing which day this was because it seems like you're even confused as to which day was what. But there was a, a point where you hit you hit a shot. I think it was into 14, and uh, you the the microphones picked you up saying something about making poor decisions, stop making poor decisions, or something like that. What 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 was that about? Like, what were you telling yourself there, and why would? I guess under pressure, it's something we hear commentators talk a lot about is, you know, the sign of pressure is making poor decisions. What were your poor decisions and how does pressure like play into that? So literally, uh, so I'll tell you when this was. This was Monday afternoon. Uh, this was probably the 67th, I guess, hole of the tournament. Uh, and I knew going to bed on Sunday night that given the conditions, given the rain, given the amount of spin we were going to get off the greens given the wind the start stop nature of everything we did uh you were going to get a lot of shots where you could hit you could hit a iron or any shot full bore or you could hit one with a little yardage off or you could hold one into the wind or you could flight one down through the wind you almost had four options on every shot just given the conditions you know if it's rock hard and it's bouncy you don't have that choice you got to moonball everything but when the conditions were like the way they were you have options and I knew that coming down to decisions, I'll, I'll, I'll rewind a little bit. The shot I hit on eight that led to the double, I was again in between hitting like a soft five wood and, and just trying to, you know, hit this bullet four iron to the front front half of the green. And, and I ended up going with the four iron because the day before I, I just hit this unbelievable four iron to like three feet on in the third round and I was just feeling it. And I got over it and I tried to hit this thing so hard. And we all know what happened. I just tugged it a little bit and then the wind took it and blah, blah, blah. So I knew at that point of time that, okay, I made a bad swing, but more than the bad swing, I made a bad decision. It'd be much easier for me to execute a soft five wood than try to hit a full bore four iron in those conditions. So I made a mental note that, look, you, you just make a good decision. And then regardless of how you execute it, you, got, you can live with that. But if you make a poor decision that leads to bad execution, then, you know, that's unforgivable or those are the mistakes you want to avoid. Uh, fast forward to the 14th hole, I had 100 and I think I had 160, 161 or so to that flag. And that's a sucker flag. We all know that that's, that, that's the one flag you have to respect on 14. Sebastian Munoz hit like 30 seconds before me. He took a club extra, went long. I think he had like 25 feet past it, which is the smart play. I was two back and I'm thinking I've got to try and make three. I'm going to have to try and stuff it. It's rained enough where it's not going to take a massive bounce. So I tried to absolutely just jump out of my shoes and smash a nine iron. Uh, and unfortunately for me, towards the end of the tournament, every time I tried to hit something hard, I blocked it out right. And I hit a lot of blocks on that back nine, whether it was 13, 14, 17, uh, not 17, 18. You know, I hit a few blocks uh, and I and I blocked that shot instead of just hitting a smooth eight iron and just holding it up and maybe going, you know, 15 feet past the flag. So as soon as I made that swing, I was like, that's a bad decision, Pan. You know, you know, you could have just hit that smooth eight iron. You're putting good enough where if you give yourself 15 feet up the hill, chances are very high that you're going to make it. So and I hit it in the singular worst place that you could hit it. You got it up and down. <laughs> I, I, I hit that chip in the practice round. I think seven times, and I did not hit it inside 25 feet. Uh, but the big difference was it had just rained, and that actually allowed me to hit that shot and allowed the ball to stop where it did because 
If you go there on a regular day without any moisture on the greens, you have no chance of hitting it inside 20 feet from where I did. Hmm. So yeah, yeah, I was, I was, I was pissed. Not so much at the shot, but at at, at the process leading into it. Uh, so yeah, that that was that was what that reaction was. It's and it's amazing how you know how many times you got to do that over 17 holes that whole process right of making that decision yeah and it you know they actually they did a great job capturing that on TV but not all of them get captured and that's that's kind of the internal chess match that's that's going on you know throughout the whole thing going back to let's go back to the 17th hole your stand do you know exactly where you're standing in the tournament when you go hit that shot. Where are you aiming it compared to where you landed it? Uh, Cam Smith had a, a similar co- a comment on that. And at any point, are you thinking about, like, what what could come in? You know, what what would happen if you go backwards in this place? Or are you solely set on trying to win this tournament? I'll take you exactly through what was going on and leading up to it as well. On 16, I had a bad tee shot. I laid up to a really good number. Uh, I had to hit it. I had 100 yards or so to the flag. I was trying to pitch it about six or seven past it. And in my head, I'm trying to make this 106 or 108 swing with my with my 54-degree sandwich. And I make this swing. I'm like, oh, man, that, that was a really good swing. And that ball probably went 98 yards. I missed it by 10 yards. And and it spun off to the front edge. And, and as soon as I hit that shot and I saw where it went, I just looked at my caddy. I looked at Tim and I said, Tim, uh, I need to eat something because – my energy levels are dropping. That ball should have gone eight, nine yards further. I think I'm beginning to fatigue because I made a good swing on that. That ball went nowhere. So Timmy immediately pulls out a bar, just shoves it down my throat. I'm trying to eat because I can feel my energy levels is just beginning to go down. Obviously, there's adrenaline in the system, but there's also you know the fatigue of playing all that golf over all that time in those conditions. So when I get up to the 17T, I'm just trying to feel like what's going on in my body. You know, how far can I actually hit it, given that I have adrenaline and the fact that I'm kind of losing a little bit of speed. So when we got to the T, uh, I, I didn't do anything. I let Timmy get the number for me. I, I had 136 to the flag exactly. And I had 141, five past it. Now, I normally hit my pitching wedge about 140 yards. If I really jump on it and smash it, I could probably hit it. 42 or 44 but just with the way i was feeling i was like this is great because i can i can hit a hard wedge and there's no way even with the adrenaline that i have it's going to go more than 140 yards it's not possible so it, it actually made my job easy uh there's no way i was going to try and chip a nine iron no. not in that situation you know you just you have to take something out of play and you take back out of play every single time so i pulled the wedge and and i just asked timmy to walk away and my stock shots usually a little draw, even though it didn't draw on 18 when I really needed it to the most. Uh, and, and I just stood at that little bunker um, and I said, just, just aim it at that trap, just make a range, 140 swing straight at it. Hopefully it just comes out dead straight and it catches that ridge. If it draws, it's still pin high. And I still actually have a legitimate chance of making it. I knew I was three back because I saw Cam Smith just stuff it while I was waiting on 16. I saw him make the putt. I mean, he's, I don't think he missed anything inside 20 feet anyways. So I knew that, uh, you know, it was very unlikely that Cam was going to collapse on 18, just the, just the zone he was in. Uh, but I knew that, you know, it's the Players' Championship, is the 18th hole, anything's possible. Um, so all I wanted to do was actually give myself a legitimate chance at, at making birdie. And uh, I, I just hit that wedge as, as well as I could, just straight at the trap. I didn't even think of anything else. 
uh, it came out good. Luckily, it caught that ridge and, and came down to where I was hoping it would, and it felt so good to make that part. Well, and that's what when does when do things change? When do you learn that he's made bogey? You know, do you know that before you tee off on eighteen? So, so, so when I was reading my part on seventeen, I had my back. Well, I I was facing the tee box, so I'm on the other side of the hole, just looking at my part, and I could hear these murmurs in the stands, like people going, "Oh," but you know, but I have no idea. It could, and I and I heard, "Oh, he's hit in the water," and I'm like, "Could be Paul Casey." It could be it, it could be anyone, and at that point of time, for just that brief instant, I'm like, someone's hit on the. I'm like, hang on, what are you doing? You you need to read this part. <laughs> you know, this thing's breaking uh, a lot, and I'm just trying to figure out what speed am I going to put on it. I'm not going to try and you know bang it into the back of the cup because if it's got 18 inches of speed, I could have a six footer coming back. So in my head, I'm trying to do calculus, trying to think of if I want to drip this in the hole, how high do I hit it? I want to make sure it gets to the hole. I'm not leaving this short. It, and it's it's a hard thing to do in that situation. So I just got back to my process. Obviously, I make that part with perfect speed exactly the way I saw it. And then when I'm walking up to my caddy, he's like, Ban, we're still in this. We're still in this. But he didn't tell me then. And then when we were walking through the tunnel, getting to the 18th, while I was in the tunnel, Timmy's like, Ban, he's chipped it in the water. We still got a chance. Let's let's do this. And then when I got to the tee, obviously I saw Cam taking a drop, so I knew he was you know now going to be hitting four. So yeah, that was kind of the sequence of how things kind of moved on. I got to the 18th tee, and my strategy for the last three years on 18th has been you know take the right trees out of play. People try and take the right left water out of play. For me, I try and take the right trees out of play. So I always hit a club that doesn't really get to that corner where it brings the right trees in play. So, you know, I've hit two iron in the past. I've hit four iron downwind. I've hit five wood. I've hit three wood. And this week it was three wood because it was soft. So I hit three wood the first three rounds in the fairway every single time. When I got on the the tee box, I was like, I, I can't hit three wood to me. Just, just give me the driver. This is, um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to, just give me the driver. I'm just going to send this one and, so yeah, that was that. It was perfect. I mean, that's where it's that's a perfect explanation there. I'm wondering like, how do you stand up there? And every time I'm you know challenged with a really difficult shot, I try to get in the mindset of like, hey, just make a great swing. Like, just make, hit a great shot, right? Don't think about all the trouble that's there. Like, make a, hit a great shot. And that's what it looked like for me when you hit that shot. It was like, this ball is ending up in the center of the fairway, no matter what happens here. Give me the driver, bang, let's go. And I mean, I mean, that was one of the longest drives down there on 18, I think. Uh, for the day, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I was—I probably had no idea about a lot of things that day, anyway. So I'm—and I'm happy about that. So I mean, you walk off. You know, you you block your your approach in, which was not that far away. If you watch Doug Gibbs, mean, after you saw Doug Gibbs' ball, does that uh, did that change? You know, any of the line you wanted to take into that shot, or you knew exactly? Yeah, we've we've all hit that shot. Yeah, you know, in the you know I've, that was my sixth or seventh go around at Sawgrass. And we've all hit that shot in the practice round. We know what it we know what it does because that's where we hit it when the pin's back, right? That, that's, yeah. that's where everyone puts from when you have that, you know, twenty one on four right pin and you would have seen that on I think I think it was the first day where they put it up there and we probably had ninety percent of putts from, from that very bowl. So we know that all you gotta do is hit it anywhere on that ridge and it all funnels down. So it it's more about picking a club. Because you can go long and still have it come back. You can go right and have it still come back. The only thing that doesn't reach the hole is if it's, you know, anything less than pin high. 
Um, so for me, it was important that I hit it at least pin high to just pass pin high. Uh, because even if you go long and right, it still comes back. Yeah. Uh, but because I kind of just came out of that iron a little bit, it kind of went, it, it kind of took off in a direction where uh, the wind actually hurt it instead of helping it. Hmm. I just needed that wind to help it and ride it a little bit. But instead of riding it, it kind of rode it, rode it opposite back into it. Uh, and even on the line that I hit it, if I hit it another four yards, it still ends up where Doug's ball ended up. So uh, it, I was one of the most disappointing iron shots I've hit in my life. Yeah. yeah. So how when you walk off the green there, you from my where I'm sitting, you played your butt off. You had really one bad one mistake, the tee shot on eight in, on in the final round. You shot 69. You shot a back nine. I had about four. Well, one that really cost you two. You know, that one cost you two shots, but you had no other bogeys in a final round playing the final group of the players. Are you able to, or at what point are you able to process what you've just achieved versus bouncing that versus the disappointment and coming up one shot short? I think for me, it's just relief. It's safe to say that I've played 98% of my best golf before I came to the PGA Tour. Which is why, you know, going into Monday and, and going into that situation, nobody gave me a chance. You know, most people said, oh, you know, he's played really well. Hats off to him for being gotten this far. Uh, but if I was to look at my career from 2012 through 15, which was me mostly in Asia and, and Europe, I mean, I understand the levels of golf are not comparable at all. Uh, but the quality of golf I was playing when I was playing my best was very similar to what I did this weekend and this Monday. So it wasn't like unfamiliar territory for me in terms of how I played. I know I play like that. When I'm playing good, I play like that. I don't really care whether I'm playing for 20 million or if I'm playing back home in India for a $50,000 tournament. You know, I just play golf. I love playing golf. I love being competitive. I love hitting golf shots and just being in the moment and, and enjoying that. So, for me, it was more relief. It wasn't like, oh, yes, I did it, or, you know, I just made the biggest check of my career. Yeah, I know all those things happened. But the biggest thing that happened for me is I played the way I used to play when I was playing my best seven, eight years ago. And that is way more important to me than everything else that, you know, comes with playing so well at a big event, you know, whether it's my world ranking or whatever else it is. Uh, those things take care of themselves if you keep playing good golf. For me, the fact that, you know, I wasn't trying to backdoor on a on a final round. The fact that I was the one who was leading going in. And granted, I got behind early because Cam got off to a heater. You know, it didn't really affect me. I didn't really change how I played. You know, I, I, I didn't fire at any pins that I didn't want to fire at. And I fired at every pin that I wanted to fire at, regardless of what was going on. Except for maybe 18, which is, you know, which is when you have to do what you have to do. And that's how I want to play golf. Uh, and that's, that's fun, man. You know, when you can do that, that's enjoyable. That's, that's why we do this. So for me, that was way more valuable than all the other, you know, things that come with it, because that's something now I can take forward and, and, and basically try and snowball this and keep playing like this out here, which I have not done justice at all, you know, to the time that I've spent out here on this tour, because I haven't played nearly anywhere near how I can play. And, and last week was an example of how I can't play. Most people haven't seen it, so they're like, what's going on? But when I spoke to my friends back home, I spoke to other people who've seen me play like that, they're like, oh man, finally, you finally showed up. You know, you ha <laughs> I, I, we were waiting for you to do this. It's taken you long enough. 
So they were more like, thank, thank F and God that you're now back to how you used to play and you're not going to just go and you know, waste your time. So it's two different perspectives. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Cash App. It is the easiest way to send, spend, and save your money. Easiest way to pay your friends back, collect money from your friends. You can do all kinds of things from it all at once. You can buy Bitcoin on it for as little as $1. You can invest directly in stocks, whatever stock you want. And it's got a ton of financial information. It's even got analyst recommendations for stocks. It shows you the biggest daily movers in the stock market, You know the biggest, the most traded stocks daily. It's uh, it's an incredible app. I really enjoy spending time on it. I'm checking it every single day. It comes with a debit card that you can customize. Cash App laser prints it and mails it to you. It also comes with free discounts on places you love called Boost. You can use referral code no laying up when you sign up for Cash App. It gives all new users a free $15 right off the bat, and Cash App sets aside $10 for each sign up to go to youth on course basically the more people that use the code no laying up and registering not only are you getting a free 15 dollars, but you're also helping to support junior golf again code no laying up at cash app let's get back to honor bond lahiri so it sounds like based on what you said you know the competition is different coming over to the pga tour yet the way you played is also not the same you did not pick up your game and translate it over here why would you say that is is it you know does it come from seeing different styles of play over here? Are the golf courses different? Is it the the style of tournament different? What what would you say has contributed to you, you to not carrying the game you had over to the states? I, I think the biggest difference for me, uh, of course, you have the you know you have the usual answers of oh, the grasses are different, the setups are different, all that. Yes, but you know I've been here long enough. I adjusted to that. I, I, I live here now. I've been here. This is home for me. I've been here six years. Uh, so those were just lame excuses at this point of time. To be honest with you, I just never, I've, I've never gotten comfortable uh, with with how I'm playing golf with my swing. I think you know when I was uh, living in India, playing out of India, uh, I see my coach a lot more, and you know he's been Vijay Devicha as my coach back in India. He's been my coach now about 20 years uh, since I was 14. But but we just had a system where I would play a tournament, I would come back. And he would see me immediately. And, and it's not like I would get a lesson. He'd just see me because I'd be at the range and he'd be like, hey, you, you picked up that bad habit again and, and your ball position's out of whack. So just, just put two shafts down, just do that and you'll be fine. Or he'd say like your spine angles off or your left hand grip's getting a little strong. It could be something as minor, as fundamental as that. And, and I would have really good hygiene with my swing. And I think I lost that hygiene after coming here. Uh, and I, I, I'm not very good at working by myself. There's a lot of guys out here you'll see on the range. You know, they'll put their uh, their alignment sticks in the ground. They'll put a you know phone on. They'll take videos. They'll do it. I can't do it like that. I, I grew up in India learning in a very old school fashion. Uh, I used to have a caddy with a shag bag. And I would, you know, I would basically laser him and say, okay, you go at 145. And every ball I hit, I would actually see one, two, three steps. Okay, or one, two steps. I'm like too long, too short, too left, too right. And my brain got wired like that. Every single shot I hit in practice, I would get feedback. And then coming here, you're looking at 200 yards wide, you know, massive three football field with fairways. And, and you're hitting shots. And I, and I kind of lost that feel. I lost that ability to really connect with exactly what I was doing because I would see it land. I'm like, damn, I can't laser it. It's in a little hollow or it's there. And I don't know how far that went or I don't know where I was aiming because there's nothing to aim at. So there were those kind of challenges and they still remain. And those are the things that kind of 
made me feel more disconnected with how I play. I'm a very intrinsic kind of player, not very left brain in terms of mechanics or in terms of technique. And you could probably see it because a lot of times I'll hit a shot. If I try and hit a cut or a draw, I'll make a swing that looks ugly on TV. You're like, oh my God, what kind of a finish is that? Or he's trying to save it with his hands. But the ball goes from point A to point B. That's all I cared about. And and I think I kind of lost a lot of that over the years coming here. So I spent about 40 days in India in this off season with my coach. I was mentally hitting rock bottom in the off season last year saying, you know, if I... If I'm going to keep playing golf this bad, I don't even want to play because, you know, I know what, how good I can play and I'm playing so bad and I've been playing so bad for so long. I don't want to just keep coming out here and grinding and, and finishing, you know, T55 or, or T45 or missing the cut by a shot. And, and I know I'm playing like five, six levels below what I can do. So I went back, I took some extended time off and actually spend a lot of time just golfing with my friends and my buddies and, you know, playing for $3 and $4 and just playing for bragging rights. And by the end of my trip back home, I was, you know, making nine and 10 and 11 birdies around. And I'm, they're like, okay, now you're starting to play more like how you play. So why don't you just go back and do the same thing? So, yeah, you know, it's been a process where I've been trying to find my love for what I do, which is play good. If you don't play good, you don't love what you do. And you have to find a way to start loving what you do. So whatever you need to do to play better. So that's, that's kind of been the journey what I've been, kind of been the journey I've been on last uh, few months. That's super interesting about your coach, I'd say, in terms of, you know, is it like, like with regular business even, there's things that happen when you're in an office together. Not everything can be done through a scheduled meeting, right? If you're, it, where if you're like with your coach, if you are, scheduling a meeting for a FaceTime lesson or something like that, it's might be because some, it's gotten to the point where something's wrong versus catching. need intervention. Yes. Versus catching something along the way. Like you said, of just touch points, you're doing this really good. You're swinging your best when you do this. I like keep doing this right here. Just keep an eye on this seems to be a, that's a far way off from like, Hey, something's going wrong. Help fix me. Is that a fair, fair to say? You know, the, the, which is why the word I use is hygiene. It's just yeah. hygiene. Yep. You know, maintenance. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. It, it, it's maintenance. Just, just, and with me, 95% of the time, it's all fundamentals as it is with most people, but it's all, you know, grip, ball position, stance, posture, you know, how, how's my balance. And, and of course, when you, when you look at a video and you say, Oh, his club's gone inside and it's a little bit across here, his hands a little bit bored. And I'd send that video to my coach and say, sir, you know, I'm, I'm going here. And he's like, hang on, get about two inches closer to the ball, get a little taller, get your weight here. Just do that and send me a swing. And I send him a swing and I'm on plane. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm back on plane. He's like, yeah, because you're not in a position to put it on plane. You can't just take your hands and just shove it on plane. You've got to be in the right position. So it's always, with me, it's always been fundamentals. It's always been pre-movement even. It doesn't have to do with movement. And I think that's the other thing I found after coming to America is this obsession with oh, position, 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 position. Uh, and, and everybody's just so involved in moving parts, which is why, you know, I keep going back. I've been here. This is, you know, this is the land of golf. You've got every instructor you could want to go to. And I've still stuck to, you know, working with him because he understands how I think and how I move. And a lot of times it's just, you know, it, it's funny. He'd always, he'd always tell me, he's like, if you look at the best sprinters in the world, they know how to run. But if they don't get on the starting block in the right position, they're not going to win the race. So I need you to get into the right position because you know how to run. 
and I'm not going to teach you how to run, but I can teach you how to be in the right position every single time. So, you know, it's a really simple analogy that works for me. I always feel like an idiot trying to talk about some of these things with, with, with players like at your level, but I, I, I want to throw this at you. I'll pick your brain and just react to this how, how you want. But what I understand about the golf swing is it, there is so much work to be done about positions, what you're talking about, right? You, you need, you, when you're playing your best, the club is in the right position. But when you're playing the, your best, you're not thinking about the club being in the right position. You are in a flow, right brain, feel state, yet you need to have technical practice on the range or at home or whatever it is to check in on those positions, yet at the same time, put in those reps so that when it goes into tournament mode, you don't have to think about that, and that has become second nature. And that, to try to sum up that process in one sentence is insanity because it is a, it's like a lifelong process, right, of, of balancing all those things. And I'm wondering if you have any perspective on any of that. Uh, I mean, it's, it is everything you said, but it could, you know, you could make it simpler and you could break it down. And, and I still remember like four years ago, uh, my coach made all his students uh, actually do an e-learning course on the, the process of learning. Like learning how to learn was an was a e-course he made all his students do. Uh, and it talks about deep learning and shallow learning and all kinds of different things. But to, again, give you a nut, in a nutshell, what you talked about can simply be broken down into two things. One is block practice and one is target practice. And block practice entails all your left brain, you know, angles, positions, postures, ball position, you know, my grip, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, positions, feels, all those things come under block practice. And, and what he basically made all of us try and learn was how do you go, how, how do you do block practice? And then how do you transition to target practice? And how do you transition back and forth and back and forth? Because when we play, we're not in block mode, we're in target mode. But the target mode doesn't work unless substantial work's been done in block mode. So even when I practice, it's like he'll tell me to put shafts down and do certain things. But he's like, all right, you have six minutes or seven minutes and you've got 15 balls. I don't care if it takes you a half hour to hit 15 balls and to do this. Uh, or, or if you want to just hit a few balls and warm up, then you have seven, eight minutes to do this. Once you've done it, I want the shafts out. I want you to hit golf shafts. The moment you can't hit golf shots, go back, do block. Once you're happy with the block, you've built your confidence, get rid of it, go to target. And you keep interleaving, which is another technical term of learning, is you have to keep interleaving between the two uh, in terms of the kind of practice you do, and you have to interleave in within the areas of practice you do. So whether it's short game here, long game here, putting here, bunker here. So you have to interleave within departments and you have to interleave within block and target. And that's how you get to a point where when you get on the golf course, you're not really thinking about this or that. You're just playing. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's something that he made, not just me, all of his students do. And I think that's really important because it's something that gets ignored. But yeah, you know, that's, I'm giving you in a nutshell exactly what you talked about. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know you were going to have that detailed and spot on of a reaction to that. That's, uh, that, that's, that's incredible stuff. So, so for people that aren't familiar about your background, like going back to how you got into the golf, what golf is like in India, and, I, and I, I'm sure we could do a whole another couple hours on all that, but uh, where, where does that story start for you? Well, my dad is now retired. He was a doctor in the Indian Armed Forces, and that's the reason why I play golf, because India, as most people know, was a British colony until 1947, uh, and one of the hangovers of the British colonizing India was golf courses. 
and most of the cantonments, like we like to call our army bases and naval bases and air force bases, most of the cantonments all seem to have a golf course. So golf is actually quite a common and a popular pastime within the army in times of peace. So how I got introduced to the game was my dad would come back from the hospital at like two, three o'clock in the afternoon. And it was just common practice that everybody have lunch and, and go off and play nine holes, you know, till the sun came down. Uh, and I used to just tag along and, and just potter around. And that's how I started. I must have been about, first time I went to the golf course, I was about three and a half. Uh, so my dad was a gynecologist uh, and, and he actually helped deliver uh, the child of the local uh, club pro at one of the army courses. So he's like, no, sir, you've got to come out. I've got to introduce you to the game. You've done so much for me and my family. So that's how he went to the golf course. And and that's the first time I went when I was, I was about three and a half. But I didn't really start playing the game till I was about eight. And then I started playing just golf with my dad and his fellow officer friends. And, uh, you know, I was a little kid who kind of tagged along. Uh, and then uh, there was a junior tournament, a national junior tournament in the town where my grandparents lived, my, my mother's parents lived. So it was a good excuse for me to go visit my grandparents and go play golf. And that was the first time I was about, I think I was 10, 10, maybe 11. I was 11. That was the first time I actually saw other kids my age play golf. Because I'd only played golf with these 30, 40, 50 year old guys, uh, you know, who played golf as a pastime. And I was like, hey, this is fun. I get to skip school and I get to play with kids my age. And I get to play these amazing golf courses. Because make no mistake, most of the average public courses here will make will look like Augusta compared to the golf courses I grew up on. So, you know, that's that's kind of how I started. And then it was fun. You know, it was fun to travel and, and go and play these courses and play with these kids. And to give you an example of how big golf was, the first national level tournament I played in the under 12 category, there were 16 kids. That's it. <laughs> and I think I finished fifth or sixth. I was like, hey, this is not bad. Maybe I can, you know, do more of this. And, and that's how it started. Hmm. That's, you, you did what everyone that when I ask for their background, what they do is that, you know, they'll, they'll kind of talk about how they get into it. And there's a huge gap from, you know, competing on the world stage. And, you know, oh, yeah, I played some junior tournaments there. So how do you get, you know, from playing in a junior tournament, you know, finishing fifth or sixth to being world class like that, that I, I, as many times as we scream it from the rooftops, I don't think people can fully understand how big of a, a, of a gap that is. So I'll fill that in. Uh, and I was trying to keep it short. But, <laughs> <laughs> but this might take a little while. Uh, so basically, I'll pick up from there. So, and, and like I mentioned, since my dad was serving, we moved uh, you know, army bases, cantonments every two, two and a half years. So eventually, I found myself in a city called Hyderabad or Sikandrabad which is where I spent about seven years between the age of 11, 11 and a half to about 17. That's where I started playing more and more and more. Uh, I started playing, you know, as many junior events as I can. I didn't really have a coach till I was 14 and a half, which is my coach now, Vijay. So I, I was literally learning from these, you know, uh, black and white photocopies of books that my dad found in the army library and you know, names going back to like one of his favorites was Phil Galvano. I don't even know who he is, to be honest, but he was like, hey, this guy's really good. And look at these photographs. And, you know, I kind of learned like that. Uh, and I just started playing more and I, I love playing. And obviously I knew how to play. I could get the ball in the hole. I got it from point A to point B. As a kid, I had, a, I, I am very flexible even today. And I was, so I had a lot of speed as a, as a little kid. 
so I could hit it far and that was fun. You know, you wanted to be a guy who could hit it far. Move, move forward from that. I missed out on qualifying for the national team when I was 14. And uh, at that point of time, Indian golf uh, was at that point where they were trying to develop coaches. So they actually got this gentleman called Donato Di Ponziano, who was this top Italian coach, uh, who now I think he's still a part of the Italian golf, uh, you know, situation scene. He came in to actually train coaches. So they had all the coaches, like 10, 15 certified coaches who were trying to get better. They got this guy to come in and teach them and they needed guinea pigs. So they called us. They called all the kids and the amateurs who missed out on making the national team and said, all right, you guys are in a 10-day camp where you're going to be taught by these guys, but he's being taught by that guy. So <laughs> you're the guinea pigs, you know. That's how I met my coach. I'll give you another little insight. I come from Bengal, which is the actual Bengal, not the Cincinnati Bengal football team, like the real Bengal. Uh, and, and the people from Bengal are, are known to be really erudite and smart and intelligent. My dad's a doctor, my mom's a professor. And as far as you can see, we're all super educated. So I was always expected to go down that road, but you know, my dad supported my golf. It was funny because I was at I was 16 and I had to make a decision whether I was going to take up you know, higher education and go into science and try and be a doctor or an engineer or play golf, which would require me to do a little less, you know, education, so to speak. And they allowed me to do that. So at the age of 17, I moved to Bangalore, which is down south, which is where my coach was based. And I, I'm the only child. I don't have any siblings. I moved by myself, like 30 miles outside the city in the middle of nowhere in a village, which was close to the golf resort that he worked at. And I got a place on my own and, you know, I would drive a little, you know, electric two-wheeler scooter, put my golf bag on front and just drive to the golf club every day from, you know, six in the morning to six in the evening and work with him and practice. And that's when I got really good because I was studying. Like my coach says, I, I used to be a full-time student, part-time golfer all the way till I was 17. And then at 17, I became a full-time golfer, part-time student. Mm -hmm. Different from how it works nowadays. Yeah. Uh, and, and when I started doing that, you know, my level of golf suddenly went just through the roof because now I was able to like dedicate myself from morning to evening. So I still remember when I turned 18, my first year as an amateur, I think my scoring average as a junior, my last year was probably a 78 or 79. And that first year as an amateur, my scoring average was like 71.5. Mm. And then the second year as an amateur, uh, I only played two years. My scoring average was in the 60s. I, I won tournaments by eight shots, 10 shots, 12 shots. And I was at that point where I looked at my coach. I said, look, I, you know, I, I wanted to turn pro after I finished my college, which I did do in India. But I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get any better. If I keep playing at this level, I'm only going to go backwards. So I actually turned professional uh, halfway through my third year of college. And in India, you can turn pro while you're in college. Here, you can't do that. In India, you can so I turned pro in, in uh, at the ripe age of 20, while I was still in college. And I started playing on the Indian circuit, which is still there today. And then I took three months off to finish my graduation and got my got my degree in my pocket because I even with that degree, I'm a black sheep in the family because I'm still <laughs> considered illiterate and uneducated. From there, it was all about getting to the Asian tour. And at every step that I took forward, I felt like, oh, you know, I'm really good. And I'd go play and I'd get lapped. You know, I'd just get beat down. Like I'd shoot. I still remember my first year I went to Asian Tour qualifying. It was a six-round marathon back then. 
uh, and I was one over after two days and I didn't make the two day cut because there were 145 people under par. I'm like, holy shit. You know, I, I thought I was good at this, but this, I got to go back to the drawing board. So, you know, I kept getting reality checks along the way and I've always had to work super hard to improve my game. I've had to work super hard to elevate my level. You know, I wasn't one of those God gifted talents who just show up and shoot 62, which is half the PGA tour. So I had to really work my way up from there. And then, you know, once I got to the Asian tour, it was the same. It was a lot of miscuts. It was a lot of, I need to get better. I need to be better at this, better at that. Then I, then I really started, you know, working on my short game a lot more because I could always hit it a mile as a kid. I was a good ball striker. I was never known to be a good putter or a good chipper. But I, I think the last three years I played on the Asian tour, they used to have the yearly awards or whatever for ball striking. And I think three years in a row, you know, I won the greens and regulation stats. I, I, you know, I, I, that's what I was really good at. And it's funny because that's my biggest weakness now for the last four years. Well, that's so I'm what, trying to, you know, to flip the tables around again. Well, that's what's funny. Like, you know, we were talking about your game, and you know, we a while ago, a while back in the conversation, we we're talking about transitioning the PGA Tour. And I've always thought that you know the driver is such a prerequisite on the PGA Tour. Yet that's a strength of yours, and and so it, you know, it's not like your game shouldn't have translated. You know, I I, I see a lot of corn fairy guys that come up that maybe don't drive it great, which you, you don't have to drive it perfect on, on the Corn Ferry Tour to succeed, yet you get up to the PGA Tour and those courses get to 75, 76 with 25-yard wide fairways. you got to drive it good. And uh, so that that's it. Yeah, that is interesting to me that, uh, you know, that being such a skill of yours. But like I said, you know, I think the biggest thing that I lost was my hygiene. So I would mm -hmm. just pick up these bad habits. It's not like I didn't pick them up before. I've always picked up bad habits, but I've had a really good, you know, system in place that would clean me up, so to speak. That's something that, that I think I lost and I've had to work really hard at trying to bring that back. Uh, and I think I'm closer now than I've been before. Well, what's it, you know, going even from India to the Asian tour, it sounds like the competition was a, uh, an eye opener, if you will. What is, you know, I, I, I kind of tying that into just coming from a background where, you know, there's not a lot of professional golfers that come from India. What kind of an influence did Arjun Atwal and Jeev Milka Singh kind of have on, on your development one? And what does competition teach you uh, what do you learn from competition so the dynamics are obviously very different and i every time i go back to india and i talk to some of the kids and there's a lot of talent a lot of potential a lot of really good players out there and i keep telling them i'm like you know even yesterday i think there was a tournament that finished in calcutta and, and the kid shot 21 under to win so you still got to shoot 21 under i mean that's that's not a joke right but you're hitting nine shots 11 shots in a round which are less than a seven act you know, you're probably going to have at least two out of four, if not three out of four par fives that are reachable. And I keep trying to tell them, look, you guys have to start learning to make birdies with six irons. If you can't make birdies with six irons and five irons, you cannot get to the next level. And I think that's one of the limitations of playing golf in a slightly underdeveloped golf nation or, or an immature sort of, you know, uh, nation. I say immature only in terms of the age, only in terms of development. I think that was my big challenge. So when I started playing on the higher levels, that's the first thing I realized is like, if I want to be as good as these guys, I have to be better with my seven iron, five iron, six iron, four iron than anyone else. Because everyone can wedge it good. But if you can't make birdie from two, 210 with a five iron, you're not going to beat these guys. So that's the first thing I started learning and understanding. And, and talking about Jeev uh, and Arjun, and there were a couple others, Jyoti and, uh, you know, 
uh, I never really met them till much later in my career. Uh, I remember I played with Jeeve back in 2008. That was the first time I met him, first time I played with him uh, for two days. Um, and he was on top of his game. You know, that was the year he got paired with uh, Tiger in Augusta. And, and you know, he was, he was top 50 in the world. And he could hit it, you know, with, with all his limitations and how he swung it and everything that is so unique about Jeeves. Uh, it was a joy to, you know, watch watch him play him, hear the ball come off his club. And I'm like, that's that's what I want my golf ball to sound like. You know, that's what happens when you play with guys who are really uh, on top of their game. You get inspired. Uh, and obviously, over time, I've become really good friends with Jeeves, very good friends with Arjun. Um, in fact, again, fast forward to like three years later, I think it was 2014, and I was playing really well at that time on the Asian Tour. And I think Arjun had just kind of lost his status uh, on the PGA Tour. And Daniel Chopra is another person who I want to mention. Even though he's technically Swedish, he's as much Indian as anyone else. Grew up there, born and raised in Delhi. Uh, Daniel also came out and played a few events in Asia. And we used to play our Tuesday practice rounds together, like Arjun, Danny, myself, and another good common friend of ours called Rahil, who's now playing in Japan who actually, by the way, is the one who coined my nickname, Ban. Uh, and the four of us, you know, we'd go out and play Tuesdays. And I remember in Japan one year, we were playing the Panasonic uh, Open in Japan. Uh, and I think that day, I single-handedly took down the three of them in the four ball. And that night, Arjun and Daniel were like, what the hell are you doing here? Like, why are you playing here? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you're good enough to beat guys out there. You're wasting your time here. And I just looked at them and said, you must be joking. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? The thought never even crossed my mind. He's like, no, you're good enough. We've played there for 10 years. We know what we're talking about. You need to get your act together and you need to start focusing and thinking on getting out there. Because at that point of time, I was like, man, I, yeah, I play good. I play okay. And it never occurred to me that, oh, really? Could I play with those guys? Am I that mm. good? I had no idea. So then Arjun and Danny, like they got in my ear and said, come on, you got to get your, you know, get your stuff together and, and start, you know, aiming to get there. And that's when I, you know, realistically started saying, all right, how am I going to get there? What's my way to get there? Okay, let me first get my world rankings, get on Europe. And, and then, you know, within an eight-month period, I won twice in Europe. I was already top 100 in the world because I was playing so consistently 13 and 12, 13, 14. Uh, and I, then I broke into the 50. Uh, came out here, had that amazing week at Whistling Straits in 15. Uh, I needed to finish, I think I needed to finish third by myself to keep my card. And I bogeyed 18 and I finished in a tie for fourth uh, at Whistling Straits the year Jason Day won. And I was excited, happy. That was the best, still remains the best finish by an Indian in a major. But I was also like so disappointed that I bogeyed 18. Uh, and, and didn't get my card. I still remember being on a on a phone call with the PJ Tour saying, hey guys, can I get into Wyndham, which was the last event of the year. And they said, well, the rule book says you're only allowed 12 events. And, you know, that special temporary membership that everyone talks about now, it's thanks to me. Really? It's thanks to, the, it's thanks to that event because I said, look, I just finished top 10. I just need to make another cut. If I finish top 30, I get my card. It's like, well, we don't have a provision in the rule book to allow you to play a 13th event. Following that event is when they added the special temporary membership because wow. I had more than, a, I would have made more than uh, points for 150th. So there's two rules that have come about thanks to Indians. One is Arjun, because he won 
the last tournament of the year, which was Wyndham Championship, and did not play the playoffs. And the second rule was myself finishing fifth at well uh, at Whistling Straits and not being able to tee it up at uh, Wyndham to try and get my card. Wow. So, anyways, I come back. I come back three weeks later. Play the Conferry Finals because I had obviously done enough to get in that. I finished, I think, sixth and ninth, or sixth and eleventh in the two, something like that, in the two events that I played. And I skipped the third event because it would have hurt my whole ranking points to play a third event. And I'd already done enough to keep my card. Uh, and I still remember when I played that Conferry Finals in fifteen. The whole news was, oh, we've got a guy ranked forty-first in the world playing Conferry Finals, but he can't play Wyndham. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually still remember it was, you know, Ricky Fowler and uh, Jimmy Walker were were giving me shit because I was playing, um, I was playing Tiger's event that year uh, in the Bahamas, and I was they were talking to me about my schedule, and I said, yeah, I'm playing Augusta, I'm playing this, but oh, I'm not into Phoenix, man. I can't get in because I'm not ranked high. And I was like, yeah, of course you're not into Phoenix. You're playing Augusta, but you can't get into Phoenix. You're in the Conferry category. So. <laughs> well you you're one of the most unique crossovers between world ranking and you know trying to get trying to get status right i mean it was just a a weird confluence of it events. was it was i mean it's all it's all it's all you know in in, in good humor now yeah <laughs> yeah that's a that's a wild story one thing I, I wanted to make sure we talked about, and uh, we, we've we've gone a lot of different directions here, is playing playing in the Presidents Cup. You you made the Presidents Cup team in 2015 and 2017. What what sticks out to you uh, the most from those experiences? We just want to win, man. Had a close one in 15. I, I I don't know how well people remember that one. I know, and and it I it kept me up for a number of nights because you know I I had that vicious lip out for from four feet that pretty much cost us. The President's Cup in hindsight. Um, I, I still remember Kirky making his 20-footer and I lipped out my 4-5 or five footer. Uh, and basically, if he misses, I make, we win the President's Cup. It was literally down to that. And I think I was the second or third last group coming in on uh, that Sunday. But it, it's it's the most special, the most unique event uh, to be a part of, without a doubt. Um, I don't think uh, I've made quite the same kind of bonds as I have uh in that in that one week that i did with all the guys that i've played with um you know we had a president's cup dinner that trevor organized a couple of weeks ago um and once you get in that room and we all come together and sit down it's it's just like one big family man it's it's amazing it's really special to be a part of and and we just want to win we we want to get that cup back it's not happened for a long time there's a few people there, um, you know, who've been on the wrong side of it so many times, myself included a couple of times. I was rooting so hard in Australia. It came down. It was really, really close. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line is the Americans are a tough bunch of guys to beat. You know, they're super talented. They're super good at what they do. Uh, and, but, you know, we, we have the heart. We have uh, the dead, you know, we, we just, we just determined. And I, I just so badly want to be a part of that bunch again, uh, whenever that is, hopefully at Quail Hollow and, and, and try and, you know, get that cup back. I think it'll be quite something. 
I hope it's a uh, you know a somewhat neutral setup. I, I have a fear that Quail Hollows. Is, <laughs> well, no, I you know I Royal Melbourne and, and you know in Korea, you know that those were really good. And, and 2011 at, at, at Melbourne as well was just a very interesting competition. Yet Liberty National set up so amazingly well for the Americans. I have a feeling Quail Hollow sets up. <laughs> Sets up really well. Why are you laughing so hard? <laughs> well, I'm laughing because I know what's going to happen. That's why. <laughs> and neutrality is quite funny. That's that's why I'm laughing. <laughs> I I realize how unrealistic that may be, and uh, especially from your perspective. But from a viewership perspective, I I, I don't think anyone really is you know rooting for a, a you know a, a wide wide margin of victory like there was in 2017. But. I do got to ask you, you're responsible for one of my favorite President's Cup moments on Saturday afternoon at Liberty National. It's getting close. The U.S. might win it on Saturday afternoon, yet you make a putt and you gave one of the most emphatic Tiger points I've ever seen, which I had a, I, I know exactly why. I know what your answer is going to be. I know why. I know you're competing and you want to win your point as badly as possible. Do you... Do you, do you see where I'm coming from? I was thinking that at that moment how how amazingly I don't want to say funny that was, but very entertaining that was. Yeah, man, that that was. <laughs> I think it it was it's the most intense I've probably ever been on a golf course. Way really? more intense than even this Monday. But I think the the putt that followed the putt you're talking about because the putt you're talking about was on 16 uh, to go one up with two holes to play with uh, Charlie and Kevin Chapel. And on 17, Charlie just chips in from absolutely nowhere. And, you know, if you've been at Liberty and you look back from that green, which is not the 17th, I think it's the third, I think it's the third hole when you played, you know, the, the normal yeah, routing. They, they rerouted. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, and it's, you know, there's this big hollow before the green and there's a massive hill from where you hit down. And I can see four carts up on the, on the fairway. I can see the entire American team. I can see JT standing with a champagne bottle and three other guys, and they're just like, everybody's like, oh, no, Charlie just did that. This is it. We're going to close him out on a Saturday. And and it was Sivu's turn to putt because he was further away. And I just looked at you and said, Sivu, no, I'm, I'm feeling this. I'm going to do this. And that's the most satisfied I've ever been in, a li- in my life after making a putt. Mm. It's just watching their entire hill go, ah, maybe not, was the most satisfying I've ever felt because we were we'd been kicked in the nuts so many times that week <laughs> yeah. it was not even funny and, and hats off to the americans man they played so well and they literally made everything they looked at on that back nine. if you broke that president's cup into a back nine and a front nine event we we won the front nine we were like six or seven or eight up on the front nine and we were mm-hmm. maybe 17 down or 21 down on the back i mean it was ridiculous how well they played so that was one of the most satisfied I've ever been in my life, just to make that part. And I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from on that. That, uh, especially, I didn't know the story of seeing them standing there with the champagne. I'm sure you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They were all up there. They're just waiting to start shaking that bottle and popping it. I'm like, not today, boys. Well, the last day too got a little more interesting than I think they had planned for. I don't know if there was a little too much party on Saturday. Yeah, we night. we do okay in the singles, but you <laughs> know, we got to take them to the singles first. <laughs> yeah. No, oh, I I'm with you. So. All right, man. Well, we'll let you go. I really appreciate you sharing your story and debriefing on a very memorable week. And uh, man, this was one of the more fun ones in recent memory. This was great to great to finally have you on. And uh, wishing you best of luck and keep turning this uh, great finish at the players into into a great rest of 2022. Thanks, Ollie. Appreciate your time. You bet. Cheers. 
Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect. 